Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Behavioral treatment programs have been integrated into primary care clinics in increasing frequency. These programs focus on decreasing stigma and improving access and offer medication management and brief psychotherapies for a range of conditions. One behavioral health treatment with particular promise in primary care is behavioral activation treatment for depression due to its potential clinical efficacy, ease of delivery, and coverage of multiple symptoms and conditions. However, more research is needed in primary care settings and across conditions. The present study investigated behavioral activation treatment for depression in 31 veteran participants with major depressive disorder or PTSD. All participants were assigned to a 12-week individual behavioral activation treatment program and completed baseline and post-treatment assessments to track symptom improvements. Although only 12 of 31 participants completed the full protocol, participants endorsed significant symptom reductions for depression and PTSD. No differences were observed in symptom reduction, treatment completion, or treatment satisfaction between participants that endorsed major depressive disorder or PTSD diagnoses. The authors conclude that their findings are supportive of the use of behavioral activation treatment for depression in an integrated primary care setting for both depression and PTSD. Future research should consider briefer versions of this intervention to potentially improve treatment completion. This study was supported by a Department of Veteran Affairs Clinical Sciences Research and Development Career Development Award. Living with a chronic medical illness is the norm in later life, and many adults over age 65 live with at least two chronic health conditions. Living with a medical condition is also stressful, as navigating medical appointments, a disruptive routine, coping with unpleasant symptoms, and fears about future health can all take a toll on psychological well-being. Self-compassion, defined as being kind to oneself in the face of suffering, may help people cope with illness by boosting resilience and reducing symptoms of depression and stress. Unlike traditional psychological interventions such as cognitive behavioral therapy that are only useful for clinical levels of distress, self-compassion is a skill relevant to all for both those with and without mental illness. This study by Brown and colleagues investigated the feasibility of a novel four-week self-compassion-based intervention for older patients in outpatient treatment for a chronic physical health condition. Patients were trained in self-compassion meditation techniques and informal self-compassion skills to use in daily life. The intervention was found to be feasible with high group attendance rates. Participants rated the sessions as highly enjoyable and relevant to daily life. The intervention was also associated with changes in well-being, including significantly reduced depressive symptoms and increased gratitude. There was also a non-significant change in heart rate variability, which is an index of heart health. Since self-compassion is universally relevant and a helpful resource to draw on in times of stress such as illness, brief self-compassion training 
may be useful for medical patients. The author suggests that a larger trial is warranted. This work was supported by an Endeavor Postdoctoral Fellowship and a Hallmark Aging Research Initiative grant awarded by the University of Melbourne and a grant from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Trust, a fundamental part of human interpersonal relationships, is associated with specific brain regions and demographic characteristics. The level of trust in medical professionals can alter health outcomes and influence the nature of the doctor-patient relationship. This study utilized structural MRI and trust data from the Dallas Heart Study, a large community-based study to determine brain regions associated with degree of trust in physicians and the medical profession. A total of 1,596 participants were included in the final analysis. MRI data were analyzed during the Dallas Heart Study using automated free surface software. Forward, stepwise, binary logic regression was performed to investigate the association between measures of trust and bilateral brain region volumes and thickness, followed by confirmatory multiple regressions of significant brain regions. Results show that left caudal anterior cingulate cortex thickness was inversely associated with trust in physicians. No significant associations between trust in physicians in age, race, or ethnicity, or education were found. The anterior cingulate cortex is an integral part of the salience network, the brain network responsible for communication and social behavior. The findings suggest the existence of neuroanatomical correlates of trust in physicians. Research reported in this publication was supported by the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences of the National Institutes of Health. PTSD is a debilitating disease with limited available treatment options and for which novel, effective interventions constitute a significant unmet need. In this article, the authors present a case of a 32-year-old woman who witnessed a terrorist attack that triggered severe and long-standing PTSD symptoms, including re-experiencing, avoidance, severity anxiety, and insomnia. The patient had to stop working and drastically reduced her social interactions. She was no longer able to use the subway, which was the place where the terrorist attack took place. Pharmacologic interventions with SSRIs and benzodiazepines produced no lasting improvement. Her treating physician decided to try trauma memory reactivation combined with the administration of xenon gas. Xenon is a known NMDA receptor inhibitor that has shown the ability to block reconsolidation of traumatic memories in preclinical studies. The patient received a total of eight treatment sessions with dramatic improvement in her condition with complete resolution of avoidance and re-experiencing. Her anxiety symptoms reduced to subclinical levels, and she returned to normal activities of daily living. According to the authors, this case study suggests that augmentation of trauma memory reactivation with the administration of xenon should be further studied. A late-stage clinical trial in patients with PTSD is currently being planned. Vitamin B12 deficiency is associated with various psychiatric symptoms. Due to a lack of resources in developing countries, investigations of the levels of vitamin B12 and folate 
are often neglected in psychiatric patients. The present study was conducted at a super-specialty medical center located in the national capital region of India to assess the pattern of serum folate and vitamin B12 levels in psychiatric inpatients compared to non-psychiatric controls. The authors found that a significant number of patients had low serum levels of vitamin B12. Similarly, more patients were found to have higher homocysteine levels than controls while comparison of serum folate levels remained inconclusive. The findings suggest that deficiency of vitamin B12 might have an implication in psychiatric illness or vice versa. The authors maintain that clinicians, especially those in developing and resource-limited countries like India, should consider measurement of serum levels of vitamin B12, folate, and homocysteine as well as early replacement of vitamin B12 in the management of patients with psychiatric illness. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs and SNRIs, have significantly impacted the treatment of major depressive disorder. However, the available clinical data show that many patients' symptoms are not adequately addressed. This review article highlights one of the newest additions to the class of SSRIs and SNRIs, levomanasopran. The authors provide an accessible but in-depth analysis of its pharmacologic properties. The analyzed data suggests that it is possible that levomanasopran is unique among all of its SSRI and SNRI precursors for its potential ability to specifically treat the fatigue symptom cluster of depression. The authors recommend future head-to-head studies to determine its clinically relevant properties. Now we invite you to engage online in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Steed Family Memory Clinic. In this issue, we highlight the case of Miss A, a 60-year-old woman with cognitive complaints. Her symptoms first became noticeable in 2015 when she became increasingly fearful of driving. In 2017, she began to have difficulty with reading and writing. She now requires assistance with financial and medication management, transportation and meal preparation, but remains independent in basic activities of daily living. Does Miss A have a major neurocognitive disorder such as Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal lobar dementia, or Lewy body disease? What would you expect to see on the neurologic examination? What treatment would you recommend? Visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to answer questions about this patient case. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. You can also browse interactive activities from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings, so there is always something new to explore. As an all-electronic journal, PCC has an unlimited amount of space in which to publish articles and features. We welcome ideas that any of you may bring to our attention, for we want to expand both the breadth and depth of our articles and specialty sections. 
Please take advantage of the open invitation to join many of your colleagues in submitting your research to PCC. We also ask that you keep us abreast of trends you see in your practice and topics that would be interesting to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, Your Place for CNS Soundbites.